you know, you can kind of like try your best um, and, and do your best. But really, when real inspiration strikes, it's not really up to you. It's sort of uh, you're walking and then suddenly like you get something completely formed in your mind. And that is that is inspiration. Has he already written whatever that I, I can write? Right. And if everybody has already written what I have to say, then there's no need for me to say anything. Right. Because in, in a very banal sort of way, as long as you write, you are a writer. Right. As long as you walk, you are a walker. People don't sit around, you know, agonizing over whether they, they are a walker or they just walk. Um, they don't sit around agonizing whether they are a breather or not, they just breathe. And so um, the advice for, for prospective writers is to write, but also, um, you know, not worry about being a writer, but just write, but also... Um Hello and welcome back to X Minutes of Poetry. Today we have with us Zi Hao Guang, a Singaporean writer and editor. You may perhaps know him from his book of poetry, Deeds of Flight, which was shortlisted for the Singapore Literature Prize in 2015. By the way, it's my favourite collection of local poetry. Otherwise, Hao Guang, would you like to briefly introduce yourself to our audience? Hello, hi Hao Yang and Joven and everyone else. Um, yeah, actually I, I, I'm quite Happy to hear that is that that uh, Deeds of Light is your favorite collection of local poetry. I'm shocked and surprised that <laughs> a people have read it, b people liked it. Um, yeah, so myself, I guess. Um, so Deeds of Light actually is my first full-length poetry collection. Before that, I had published like a small chapbook called Hyperlinkage, um, and that was two even like two years before Deeds of Light, I think. And then uh, a sort of a seven eight year gap. And uh, I've got a new book of poetry coming out next year, early next year. It's and that's called the International Left Hand Calligraphy Association. Um, what else can I say? I'm a I'm a writer, editor. Uh, occasionally, I teach poetry, but that uh, I I used to do it full time. It's no longer my full time job. I've got a full time desk job, so I do everything else, kind of like take leave, uh, do it on the side. Yeah. Right. So, um, speaking about your new book of poetry, the International Left Hand Calligraphy Association. Uh, how did you arrive at the title? Would you like to take us through it? Yeah, sure. I Actually, the, the truth is I had started writing poems for this book since 2016, maybe, um, since the year the year after this uh, book came out, um, but sort of very slowly. I uh, wasn't sure whether this was going to end up as a book or not. And it was only much later that I realized, hey, I'm really interested in this kind of shop or this place that I keep seeing, um, you know, uh, in, in my neighborhood. Uh, which is which is actually in the the basement of Khartoum Shopping Center. This place that is actually called the International Left Hand Calligraphy Association, and I was really intrigued by it because um, it's uh, you know why why would you need a left hand calligraphy association? And after a little bit of digging, I found that um, actually this is I mean it's Chinese calligraphy that that they're talking about, and the reason why left hand is important is because a lot of people up to this day believe that you cannot write Chinese characters with the with the left hand properly. And much less calligraphy, right? So you, you you need to use your right hand because that's how Chinese characters are supposed to to be made, right? Made for the right hand. Um, and and a lot of kids would in, in the past would have been uh, kind of scolded, uh, forced to use their right hand, even if they were left-handed, because that was just the way things were done. Lah. So this this association kind of emerged as a response to that to say actually you can use your left hand to 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 write these characters, and it's also beautiful. It's also it's also a, a work of art. Um, yeah, so I thought it was really intriguing. 
I wrote a poem about it. And much, much later, even after that, years later, after I wrote the poem, uh, a friend of mine, and also a poet, uh, Daryl Lin, he, he, he suggested uh, using this poem title as the book title. Uh, and I said yes. And, um, and I think what led me to, to agree to this was because it, it seemed like the kinds of poetry I was writing, uh, the, the, the style of the poems, kind of looked like calligraphy or like they, they seemed to be calligraphic in the sense that they were, they were interested in both the text as well as space um, uh, on the page. Um, yeah, and, and also there was a little bit of a kind of weird quality to them. They weren't just the usual sort of lyric poems that I had been writing up to then. Uh, there was a, the quality about them that made them a bit uh, more strange, I guess. And that's where the, as it, the left hand comes in. Yeah, where you don't normally uh, use your right hand to write calligraphy in the same way that these poems, in a way, are not the usual sort of lyric poems. Yeah, so that I think that's how I settled on the name and that has since stuck. Um, and that seems to, that seems to be it, yeah. And uh, speaking about calligraphy, did it hold any special meaning to you prior to this? Um, I I don't think so actually. Like I I have, I have kind of been mildly interested in learning uh, calligraphy, uh, both Western and, and Chinese forms of it. I think in, in, in the Chinese form of it, uh, when I was much younger, I had a little class. Uh, the Western calligraphy actually took a took a calligraphy class as well, but kind of very minor dabbling la. So I wouldn't say that I'm like really into this uh, as a as an artistic practice in and of itself. But I do think that it is uh you know the 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 practice of of taking your handwriting and elevating it into art is something that we are losing because we often do not use our hands to write things anymore. We kind of type on the on the computer or design on 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 the computer. Yeah. So I think that's something interesting about that practice that maybe comes through in the poetry, yeah. Okay. When you speak about left-hand calligraphy, right? I mean, I think of it as a break from tradition, and a form of poetry that's also a break from tradition would be free verse for me. And I noticed that the style of the poems in your fourth-point book, right, is really different from the style in Deeds of Light. And it's not so, like, it's free verse, so it's not just a break from tradition, but it's also a break from your previous way of writing. And it actually surprised me just now when you said that you started writing the first poem from this collection in 2016, just one year after Deeds of Light was published. So what changed for you? Um, yeah, I think that's a, yeah, it's a good question. I've tried to, to answer this before, and I feel like every time I try to answer it, it will have a, there will be a little bit of a difference in the answer. Um, and I think the basic thing is I believe that books of poetry at least my books of poetry are sort of like ideas in, in and of themselves, right? So Deeds of Light was tackling a certain kind of poetry, a certain idea about poetry um, that I feel would not be fair to the book uh, if I had actually, you know, not fully explored the idea I wanted to explore, right? My, uh, if I continued writing in the same style and with the same concerns as Deeds of Light, I f uh, even after the book was published, I f you know, I feel like, my, my response to that would be, but why are you doing it? You have already published this book. You should have not published and waited and put the poems that you're writing into the book instead rather than publish the book and then continue writing in the same way. Um, and I think that's what led me to say, okay, I will stop or, or rather I, I, I want to find a different idea. I want to find a different way of, of approach um, to what has come before. So there was a, a period of a few months of like feeling lost, trying to write random things that didn't work out. And then, um, I guess, hitting upon a new way of writing, a new style of writing uh, that I didn't really know 
you know, at, at that point in time, I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't really know why I was writing in that way. And only over months and years of continuing writing that way and realizing that I wasn't bored of it, I had still had more things to say, you know, that more poems were actually coming. Those poems were somewhat okay, like they were not terrible poems. Um, made me realize, actually, yes, there is a different concern, that there is a different style, that this is something, this could be another book slowly. Yeah, so I, I think it's a, it, it wasn't a conscious choice to make a new book, but it was a conscious choice to explore something different and see where that ended up. Yeah. And um, maybe on the topic of form, could you maybe compare the two different modes of writing regarding like free verse and formal poetry? So how the writing processes differ to you? Yeah, okay, so I, I think I've answered this question somewhat in a in a previous interview. I think what I said was, in Deeds of Light, I already had a certain structure in mind before writing. And then in this new book, when I started writing po- the, the poems themselves, I didn't necessarily know where they would end up. So I can tell you the process quite clearly for this latest book because it's pretty fresh in my mind, right? What I would do is I, I had certain ideas or places or images that I found interesting, um, you know, such as this, the actual shop in the basement of Cutting Shopping Centre, and I would actually uh, kind of allow all these images, these ideas to kind of percolate in my mind and, and sort of do a free write, if you're, if you're familiar what, with what a free write is, just to kind of like explore the idea. So I'll just start writing without any, not even caring whether it's grammatical or anything, and just start typing, and it kind of be in a long, unbroken sentence, stream of consciousness, random things are added in there. And then if I find that this is going somewhere, or if this is interesting, then I will start shaping it. I'll start like deleting parts of this of that very long sentence. I'll start introducing things. And only after a while um, of doing this, I will say, okay, maybe this is a poem. And if I decide that, okay, maybe this is a poem, then I will start uh, seeing how I would separate you know, the, the sentence out, let it breathe a little bit. Uh, where are the, the pauses? Where are the... The, the continuations, which parts of the sentence actually belong together more than others, rearranging it, and that would end up being a poem, right? So that's kind of the typical way in which the poems in, in, in this new book uh, were formed. Um, and, and so it, it really is true that when I start writing this, you know, the start of a certain poem, I really have no idea where, where the end would be. Sometimes when I edit, I kind of remove entire stanzas and the end is actually in the, in the middle of what I wrote, that kind of thing. Yeah, whereas I, I believe in, in, in Deeds of Light, uh, I, I was kind of interested in exploring uh, things like how you can find, uh, you know, creativity within order, especially the orderliness of a city. And I thought that that would be important to express in the form of the poetry itself. So I was like, okay, I need to have poems that, I need to have one villanelle, I need to have one sonnet, that kind of thing, right? And and I was thinking, okay, if I want a villanelle in this, in this collection, what sort of uh, content would lend itself to being villainized, and I said, like, okay, you know, uh, what do you call it? Um, writer's block. Right? Writer's block is the kind of thing that forces you go over and over, uh, you know, go over and over again in your mind. You know, what? How can you write better? What can you do? Uh, and that seemed to be one of the things that was interesting. So, so I already had idea that I wanted a villanelle about writer's block even before I started writing. Right, so that's what I mean by I kind of had an idea of what I want or where I wanted to be even before I started writing. Yeah, but we can talk more about the individual poems, I guess, uh, later on. Yep, sure. So just now you mentioned that when you were writing calligraphy, right, and during the editing process, you just uh, put in line breaks or put certain parts together because you felt like they made more sense together 
or I felt made more sense with more space in between lines. But do you think this process is a bit more subjective compared to when you're writing with a form in place? So how do you decide at the end that, okay, this this shape is what I want the poem to be? Because what if you feel like this poem could do with more space in another week? So I feel like there's greater subjectivity when it comes to writing free verse, right, compared to formal poetry. Um. Yeah, well, I would say I trust my feelings at that point in time. So there have been cases where I have relooked the poem months later, years later, and said, okay, it doesn't really quite work. Uh, but often what I would do in response to that actually is like remove the poem entirely from the manuscript rather than edit it severely. There are very few poems in uh, calligraphy that are actually, you know, actual rewrites of poems that I had written earlier. So usually the to, to, to the poems in calligraphy are minor. Either that or I deleted the whole poem uh, altogether uh, or I deleted the whole poem, kept the title and wrote a new poem which is essentially saying I, I discarded the whole poem. I can't really tell you why that's the case. I just kind of, um, over the, the years writing these poems, uh, developed, I guess, a sort of instinct which I couldn't really fully articulate which told me, you know, which told, which guided me in a certain way to say that, okay, this poem actually really doesn't belong there anymore. Or uh, your, the poems you're writing now are better, so delete those older ones, right? Um, and give me an instinct on, on what poems, I, I would say, are, are successful, what didn't quite work. So at the start, when I was still not sure what I was doing, a lot of the poems from the 2016, 2017 years didn't make the cut because I felt that they just... I mean, they were the, the they, they were essentially coming out of exp- uh, experimenting, right? I wasn't really sure what I was doing. I wasn't clear about um, what I was working towards, and only kind of you know mid 2017, 2018, when I was pretty sure that this was going to be a book, um, then the poems I started writing from then on uh, became a bit more kind of uh, assured. Yeah, I can't remember how it was like for Deeds of Light already. I'm pretty sure there were poems that I edited as well. Um, definitely there's there's a poem in which, uh, a sonnet, I think, um, called Earthworks, in which I completely rewrote the, the sestet. So at first it was a different set of six lines that ended the poem, and I kind of like, couldn't take it, like it was really bad. <laughs> and I and I kind of changed changed the entire sestet, yeah. So maybe it's, either way it was instinct, I think, right? Whether or not it was for formal verse or free verse, as you, as you say, I think it's it, it was instinct telling me, you know, it's good enough not good enough go and change it yeah okay uh, i would like to talk about a, a book of which we, you were part of as an editor which is unfree verse and in the blurb of unfree verse it presents the claim that uh rhyme is shakespeare rhythm is rap and singlet is free verse and then it proceeds to to challenge that with, with formal poetry written by singaporean poets uh, which is described as an important but overlooked aspect of singapore's literary history and canon so could you maybe take us through the place of formal poetry in Singapore's literature? Sure, yeah. This is one of the yeah, more difficult questions <laughs> in the <laughs> sense that I, 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 can't, I, I haven't done a, a study in that sense, right? But what I, I do find, um, at least contemporary, in contemporary poetry, which is poetry at least the past 10, 20 years or so, and poetry that, that continues to be written today, there is a, a, a sort of... Poets in Singapore, at least the ones who write in English, start off from the assumption of free verse, right? They assume that poetry is, generic poetry is free verse. And then if you want to do something extra special, you write in form, right? So that's kind of like the, a starting assumption. And this wasn't the case 
um, in or, or this is not the case in all poetic cultures across time and in the world, right? Mm. Uh, where, for example, in classical China, in classical Chinese poetry, the assumption is you are writing in a certain way, right? And and actually, baihua or like their version of of free verse actually was something out of the ordinary, something quite radical, and different, right? And even free verse in, in 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 the way that we think about it today is actually a French sort of invention. In the eighteen, you know, the seventeenth century, I believe, or the eighteenth century, firstly, which, which was also a sort of, you know, it meant something quite quite radical in the context where everyone else was writing, or where everyone's assumptions were formal poetry of a certain kind, and I think this is true of English poetry as well, uh, especially during the period in which Singapore became a colony of. Or, or rather, the, the the whole kind of region became a British colony, or, or in, in one form or another, right? So there's a kind of uh, the, the the Romantic and the Victorian era of of English poetry often use uses, uh, if not um, outright rhyme and meter, it's blank verse, and these were the starting assumptions. And if you wrote in free verse, you were you were making some some kind of claim for a different kind of poetry, right? You're, you're kind of sticking a claim that actually I, I do not care. Um, as much about this tradition, I'm interested in, in, in something more free, right? There's a, something free about my expression when it is uh, unconcerned or, or less concerned about fixed form and meter. Um, so, so I think that's, that's, that's the sort of um, inheritance that we have gotten as well. And I, and I think part of the reason why uh, we no longer write in form uh, predominantly is because part of it is we want to escape from that. Right? We want to escape from this mm. association that formal poetry is very British, very colonial, um, right. and I think that's what's going on in the minds of writers when they, when when at, at least at the start, maybe not today, but perhaps um, in the sixties during independence, when uh, writers were thinking, uh, how should I write my poetry? Right. Um, if you actually look through Antriverse, um, you'll find that in the uh, throughout Antriverse, not just you know in the oldest examples, you still find people writing sonnets, you still find people writing villanelles, but um, you will find that they are not interested in simply copying you know what uh, British writers have written, right, or what American writers have written. Um, the kind of style, the concerns, the content. That there's always a struggle, I would say, um, and I think I, I I wrote this in a previous as well. There's always a struggle to reconcile uh, tradition with with kind of uh, one's lived reality, yeah. And I think that is the sort of tension that that formal poetry in Singapore can offer to uh, readers of Singapore literature or or literature in general, right? That through this wrestling with form, you know, how do you want to, you know, how closely do you want to adhere to the form? What sort of content do you want to put into the sonnet that that perhaps hasn't been put into the sonnet before? Mm. Um, all these concerns, I think, are kind of useful and fruitful uh, in a way that maybe free verse is not so, right? Because free verse doesn't even have uh, a certain starting assumption anymore. When you write in free verse, it doesn't mean I am being revolutionary and I am being uh, radical, right? It's kind of taken for granted. It's it's the starting mm. point. And sorry for the slight digression, but since you mentioned the idea of Chinese poetry and on the idea of literary traditions, I was quite curious to to hear what are your thoughts on like uh what distinctions can one make between the Chinese literary tradition and the English literary tradition? Wow. Okay. Another very big question. Uh, not sure if I can if I can Take talk like if I can talk intelligently about this. Um. 
I I I find it actually it, it is quite interesting. I I find that when a lot of uh Singaporean Chinese or people in Singapore who who know Chinese, when they think about Chinese poetry, their mind immediately gravitates towards uh classical Chinese poetry, especially poetry of the Tang Dynasty. And I think that's because we encounter it in school, and that's the kind of poetry that we see, that we associate with Chinese poetry. When in fact there's a lot of contemporary Chinese poetry, and not just written in in PRC China, but also Hong Kong, also Taiwan, mm. uh, that just doesn't care anymore about classical <laughs> Tang poetry, right? Like it's just whatever, right? It's like it's like uh, you know, um, it's like if we were all obsessed by Shakespeare, then somebody else came in and said, like, how come everyone is talking about Shakespeare only? Um, yeah, so so I think I think. Um, there is just a, a wealth of Chinese poetry out there that um, that very few, and very little of it gets translated into English. So you kind of um, only get a little bit, and furthermore, of course, the little bit that you get is the the bits that English translators have deemed important or or, or useful to look at, um, and so you don't get the full full picture. Um, I think it's. Uh, it's it's interesting because I do find that English poetry has uh has has the possibility of um more diversity simply due to the fact that many more different kinds of people uh know English and work with English. Um and yet and yet I I also find that um even though that should be the case, uh, um poetry English poetry as far as I can tell with, with what I've read Actually, tends to tends to 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 have pretty narrow concerns in in the sense of like approach, uh, style. Like you can roughly kind of categorize English poetry into a few different kinds, contemporary English poetry into a few different kinds, um, and and I find that that's uh you know it's it's surprising to me uh, that poetry is not you know even more weird and diverse in English, yeah, um yeah. So this is my very unacademic response to your question. <laughs> It's quite interesting that you brought up translation because I'm aware that you've done some translation as well, right? Translating poems. So I'm just curious, what languages are you able to read? Um, I can read English and Chinese, but English is my kind of native, I guess, quote-unquote native language. And Chinese is, is the language I still need the dictionary for, especially for translations from, you know, poetry and fiction, right? Uh, I've actually uh, translated fiction as well, and that's a lot, a whole different ballgame, very, very involved and intense. Um, yeah, I, I have done some translation from Chinese, and in fact, in calligraphy, there are a couple of poems that are titled, um, you know, something, something, something by Auntie, and these are actually sort of um, uh, Chitabak translations from her poetry. Was that the extent of your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I would say. so like, what are some struggles you face when translating works? Because it's different from writing original poetry or original fiction. Yeah, I I find um I find poetry much easier to translate, uh honestly because uh poetry to me I I feel less of a need to, um, I feel less of a need to do a one to one correspondence right. So if I find something in Chinese that I find difficult to translate into English, I feel like I can take more liberties in poetry, whereas in fiction it's a bit harder to me. Um, fiction also like for example in Chinese the, the, the way that the grammar is sometimes um, you have to not just translate words but translate phrases right so um, you know the, the sub, it's not subject object verb all the time or, uh, yeah, it's not subject object verb um, or like the grammatical structures change so the front of the sentence becomes the back of the sentence in English that kind of thing and you sort of lose some rhythm uh, if you don't do the translation properly, sometimes there are these interesting ticks in Chinese fiction. For example, you have sentence which goes 
uh, like, like super long and super crazy, right? In, in Chinese, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because uh, it, it just makes sense in Chinese. And then in English, you struggle to kind of articulate that very, very long sentence that jumps uh, different places uh, if you just translate it directly. So I've had to decide like whether I want to, um, you know, chop it up and, and, and turn it into multiple sentences or try to retain the flavor of the original and kind of try to massage it to make it less awkward in English. Yeah, so... That's what I remember from my one and only uh, struggle translating uh, Chinese fiction to English. And and on the topic of translating poetry, uh, you mentioned how rhythm and and meaning are, are things that you have to balance when when translating, right? So, uh, what's your decision making process when thinking about whether you should price the the sound and rhythm of the poem, or whether you should price the the meaning of the poem? Good question. I, I, I think the sort of precise way to state the problem is meaning and rhythm in poetry are not totally, uh, are not t- totally different things, right? Mm. Um, sometimes the meaning is in the rhythm in, in, in the poetry. And that is a difficulty because once you t- take something into a different language, the rhythm changes altogether and therefore the meaning by definition changes. So that's the, the, the trouble, right? And I think my my solution, which is also not academic, I think there are actual academics who kind of like puzzle over this question. I think my, my response to this would be, we live in an age where Google Translate is everywhere, right? Machine translation is everywhere. So on a sort of very basic, what does this character mean or what, what do these two characters mean together sort of uh, level, um, it's easy for anyone to find out the answer, even if they don't know the language, right? So to me, I think what I would try to do is prize that that sort of rhythm, the sort of un, so-called less translatable aspect, right? That pure machine translation cannot get you to, yeah. Which I think I, I try to do in, in my translations in calligraphy. I would say that, that I call them cheetah translations um, because the originals do not, um, do not have the same sort of um, line spaces and breaks that I use. But I do think that my line breaks and spaces, that, that the line breaks and spaces I have kind of included in, in the translations um, offer a clue and a guide as to how you know, the, the sort of style and the tone of the poem should be like that may be lost if it's just a, a very direct translation of, of the words only. Yeah. Mm. So when you were translating those Chinese works, was it really just you and Google Translate? Uh, no, like, actually, for the poems, no. Because the poems, uh, I'm also very cheated about, right? I choose poems that I find that I can understand without having to Google Translate. And to me, I thought Ansi was perfect because I sort of felt like I got her poetry. Um, at least certain pieces of her work, like not every single poem I got that way, but many I got, right? I actually translated a lot more than uh, than appear in, in the book. I think only maybe three poems of hers appear in, in, in my book, um, and I translated like maybe ten. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, did not, I did not actually use Google Translate very much for, for, for her poems, yeah. And, actually, Jovan uh, and I... Wait, sorry. Actually, Jovan and I have been looking into... Asian poetry recently, and we discovered this Chinese poet, I mean, she's based in America, uh, called Sally Wenmao, and so we'd just like to know more about like, other Chinese poets whom you might recommend, perhaps? Uh, as an as ethnically Chinese poet? No, no like, not necessarily poems written in Chinese, I think that's more interesting for us. Okay, okay, because I think Sally Wenmao doesn't write in Chinese, Yeah, she right? doesn't. She writes, yeah. she writes in English. Um, yeah, I suggest Beitao. Um, yes. Yes, uh, Beta is really good. Do you want more suggestions? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not, I'm not super super well. So, so uh, recently I just read a book 
called Moving a Stone, which is uh, a book, a bilingual book. La. So the original is in, in, in Cantonese, really, and, and it's been translated to English. And and the, the author is Yam Kong, but uh, it's translated by James Shear and, and Dorothy C. Yeah, so that's also I, I found quite interesting. I think you, you it, because it's it's facing, so the, the the Chinese is on the left and the English is on the right, and you can kind of compare. I think that's the best way that I that I read um, Chinese poetry in translation nowadays. Uh, and you can find many similar formats for Beidou's poetry as well. Okay, so I'm quite uh, surprised that you've heard of Sally Wen Mao. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I have, I have. You know, did you know that Sally Wen Mao like visited Singapore like ages when? ago? Oh, Asia, uh, I did not know maybe that. Maybe I think. Oh. Yeah, anyway, it was a long time ago. And, and I met her, I think. I met her once. Yeah. Oh, so you've known so her for a long time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Going back to, to Iron Fever's, uh, in, in the introduction, the editors actually stated that they, they hope Unfreevers becomes canon-breaking and for future generations of writers to avoid reinventing the wheel. Could you maybe elaborate more on what you meant by that and on the new directions that Singlet could go or have gone since then? Yeah, um, I, think, I think this canon-breaking thing really is a dramatic way of saying that, um, that we didn't intend or expect that unfree verse will lead to a lot of people suddenly wanting to write formal poetry. That wasn't really our intention. Our intention isn't to say free verse is bad or worse and formal poetry is better and you should do it. Um, so so that, that is really why I think it, it, um, we, we, we use the, the, the term canon breaking because often oftentimes a lot of anthologies are written to form canons, right? To say this is the best poetry of like, you know, uh, the year or whatever, right? Or the best Singapore poetry, um, and and write like this, right? Generally, these are the, 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 there are certain po- uh, anthologies that are published to kind of create taste and to and to maintain taste. Um, and what we wanted to do really was to document things that had already been happening all this while, just that we missed it, right? And 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 to say actually, even though not very many Singaporeans release books that are fully formal poetry, right? Actually, we can see evidence that many Singapore poets are interested in. Uh, you know, dealing with form, even if just for that moment, right, or just for these one or two poems. What was the other part of it? Uh, canon breaking. What was the other one? Uh, that you mentioned. Right. Um, and uh, what what are the new directions that that Singlet has? Oh, new direction. What do you think could go? Okay. Yeah. So so from just from doing that unreverse project, what I realized, or or you know, what occurred to me again, um, was that actually even without uh, you know, even before unreverse emerged as a as a project there were actually a lot of younger Singaporeans who were starting to write or writing in, in, in form. Just that form is not the, the kind of typical idea. You know, it's not, they, it was not that they were all writing in sonnets or, or villanelles, right? But they were creating their own uh, forms. They were using, uh, you know, platforms such as Simple Rhymo to, 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 to uh, spread their, their new forms, right? So, so uh, that, you know, some of these forms are invented by Simple Rhymo. Some of these forms are kind of... Um, Organically emerge from the Simporamo platform, right? There are certain memes which I, I I think memes are a form as well, right? Certain memes that spread on Simporamo, um, that that uh, that are poetic in nature, <clears throat> yeah. So so to to me it seemed like organically there was already this kind of revived interest in 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 form, um, at, yeah, at least for that part that point in time, and 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 that was quite interesting to me. So I think that's one direction, one future direction of of Singapore poetry. 
I do think because we talked about translation, I think I think um, um, multilingual slash interlingual um, kind of um, explorations. That's another part of it because I think naturally people want to question the way that we use language. Um, especially in a place like Singapore. So even if it's uh, a poetry that's written ostensibly in one language, I think um, there's a lot more space perhaps now than before to admit uh, different kinds of Englishes um, and also different languages in poetry. Yeah, These are, I guess, two that come to mind. Hmm. On the topic of developing new directions for Singapore poetry, right? I think just now we talked about how when Singapore was first independent. Poets tried writing in free verse, perhaps as a form of rebellion against our colonial legacy. So I think it's kind of justifiable because why would you want to write in a form of your colonizers, right? And so I think a reason why many Singaporean poets might choose to write in free verse is because we don't really have many poetry forms which are native to us. So is that something you agree with? Yeah, so I guess my, my previous answer sort of half answered this question you have, right? Because I, I think that's not true. Even forms that are clearly quote-unquote Western, right? Like the sonnet form doesn't really quite belong to any one country anymore, right? It could have been invented in Italy, but it has since spread all across the world, right? All across Europe um, and, 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 and outside of Europe as well. That is really difficult to say that the sonnet form belongs to Italy, right? Or if you are Italian, you have the sonnet form as your heritage and uh, no one else can write a good sonnet. And in the same way, I think we should totally see sonnets as part of the Singaporean tradition as well. Um, and you can find many examples of that tradition in Unprevers, for example. Uh, but beyond that, I think I also mentioned that there are some you know, interesting forms that kind of were created on Singapore Rhymo and uh, other forms that, I guess, are created by Singaporeans, even outside of Singapore Rhymo, that also are part of our tradition. Um, also um, part of, I guess, I would call it a live tradition, right, that, that is changing before our eyes, even, uh, because some of these forms only emerged in the past few years or so. So I would, I would disagree, right? I'll say that, that um, both in the sense that we shouldn't just be obsessed with finding out what is purely our own, because that's quite difficult to do, um, and kind of leaves you paralyzed, but also we are in inventing new things as well. Yeah. And um, I think going to an interview with Yao Kai Chai that you did before, you mentioned that you have your own assumptions as to what intellectual and, and sensual mean and how they translate to poetry. So, for instance, you find your writing in, in uh, Deeds of Light, Lyrical and Confessional. Uh, how do you understand and define those terms? Yeah, sure. Um, lyrical and confessional. Well, to me, I think lyrical is uh, lyrical poetry distinguish itself distinguishes itself from other kinds of poetry um, because it has this thing called the lyrical eye, uh, which essentially is when you read the poem, you know that there's a point of view, or, or you know there's a, there's an eye speaking in this poem. The eye may not equal to the to the poet, but there is a definable eye that's speaking in this poem that observes, interacts, you know, talks, right, um, makes judgments and assessments, and that's the lyrical eye. Right, and this lyrical eye, you know, uh, can, you know, manifest many different kinds of styles, moods, tones. Right, um, this lyrical eye doesn't just need to use language in one way or, or right. So, so lyrical poems can manifest in, in very, very many sorts of uh, and uh, modes of writing. I think, and then confessional, I think, is a sort of subset of lyrical, right? Which is, mm -hmm. which is the confessional. To me, I think the good confessional likes to play with this lyrical eye and kind of, kind of deceive the reader, right? And says the lyrical eye is the poet. 
um, I'm, 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 uh, you know, I'm actually speaking as a poet in the lyrical eye, right? And I'm going to deceive you a bit because I'm going to make you think that it's the case. But actually, to me, I think the, the, the confessional poet is very good at wearing a mask that looks exactly mm. like his real face. Um, yeah, so that's, that's to me how I see lyrical and confessional. And um, in that sense, I, I do think that many of the poems in Deeds of Light are, uh, do that, right? They have a very definable eye. Um, and many times they offer sort of uh, biographical nuggets, right? I, you know, um, I'm from this place, I'm from that place, um, you know, uh, this is what happened to my cousins, this is what happened when I went traveling, right? That may or may not be real, um, but people reading it assume that it's real and that's great. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's kind of like my idea of what lyrical and confessional is. But of course, um, if you read a lot of Singapore poetry, if you read a lot of confessional and lyrical poetry outside, you know that that's not the only way that people think about it. And I do think maybe there is this assumption that if you write formal poetry, uh, that's less lyrical or confessional, which I disagree with, right? It's, uh, you know, uh, less invested with emotion and more intellectual, which I also disagree with. Um, yeah, so if if the poems in Deeds of Light are, you know, not emotional enough or not uh, don't appear to be interested in lived experience as much, it's mostly my fault, um, and rather than the lack of intention. Yeah, right. Uh, my fault in the sense of like, oh, I didn't write well enough that convinced people to to think that way, rather than any lack of intention on my part in exploring those things. Before we move on to the we've talking about deeds of flight, right? You mentioned something rather interesting just now. You said good confessionalism, right? So I was just curious, what do you define as bad confessionalism then? Um, to me, I think any poem needs to to kind of work on its own terms, right? So if you are uh, writing a sonnet, you want to write a really good octet uh, that sets out a problem that you kind of solve innovatively in the sense that blah blah. Right? You can talk about that all day long. And if you want to write a good confessional poem, I think a good confessional poem is not a poem that is a poem that still manages to surprise, right? Um, even though the poem is supposed to be very honest and very direct, right? There's always this element of turning away, this this element of like I'm not going to tell you everything, right? I'm going to like review a bit here and there and kind of like surprise you, interest you, um, um, kind of stun you, right? Uh, and and I think um, there are there are certain kinds of confessional writing that does not surprise you, right? That from the very first line that you read, right, you already know what the poem is going to be about. Um, and to me, that's not good confessionalism, right? Cause like why? confessional writing should be shocking, right? You should read it like, oh my gosh, this person actually thinks this, like how can it be, right? Uh the, the your you know your deepest, darkest thoughts or whatever, right? Or at least the appearance of your deepest, darkest thoughts, right? Like I said. Um and if it's a po- if it's poetry that does not surprise you at all, if it kind of like, oh I know where this is going, right? Then I, I think it's not good luck. Yeah. So moving on to Deeds of Light, you mentioned just now that it was your attempt at finding creativity within order, right? So where do you find that creativity well, when you first started writing Deeds of Light then? Where did the inspiration come from? Uh, good question. Inspiration is a very difficult topic to talk about because it is really hard to pin down, right? Um, some people would say, uh, it, you know, I just sit around and like one day I get an idea and I really cannot tell you where the idea comes from. I don't really believe that it's true for me, at least. Um, I, I, I do think a lot of times the idea comes from things that I've been reading, writing, or thinking about already. Um, and I don't just randomly write and read uh, things. I try to look for things that interest me. And, and to me, I think uh, inspiration is sort of like a, you know, um, 
you are prepared for so 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 both the opportunity and, and the preparedness, right? You you are prepared because you have been reading, you have been like um you have been thinking about things, but then there are certain opportunities that strike, right? Suddenly you see a scene in front of you or whatever, right? Or you talk to somebody that really kind of uh, opens up the possibility of a poem for you and then you are prepared to write about it because you have been thinking about things and, and stuff like that, right? So it's a combination of opportunity and preparedness in a way. Um, but that's also not the best way to, 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 to write about it because sometimes no matter how much you do, you know, the words just will not come, right? And I do think there's, or that, that there is a certain aspect of it that is... Um, that is really, uh, I wouldn't say psychological, I would actually say spiritual. It's almost as if there is something, uh, you know, there's something in the air, right, that you can only catch if you are open to it, right? If you close yourself off to the, to, to the spirit in the air, right, then, uh, then, then you, 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 you know, you can kind of like try your best um, and, and do your best. But really when real inspiration strikes, it's not really up to you. It's sort of, uh, you're walking and then suddenly like you get, something completely formed in your mind and that is that is inspiration yeah i don't know if that's a that's a useful way to talk about it or if that helps but that at least that's how it works for me yeah i mean that that definitely helps thank you and yeah within deeds of light i think there's a poem that uh how young and i have discussed before which is passeris and we thought i think it's best to hear from the poet himself uh what did you hope to to express in in passeris yeah, I, I, I would say that you, your, your analysis of it was really good. Like, I had not thought about this poem for years, and then you, 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 you know, suddenly kind of like surprisingly talked about it. And I was like, wow, okay, that's, that, that's awesome. Um, I, I think I, I mentioned earlier in this interview that I was, it, when, while writing Deeds of Light, I felt like I needed certain forms to be in the poems, uh, in, in the book, right? So like, I need a villanelle, I need a sonnet. It's not as crude as that, lah, to be fair. It's more like I wanted, I wanted a book that had different kinds of forms in it. I didn't want there to be like 10 sonnets. I just wanted different things. And um, I knew that I wanted a, a rep- repetitive form, right? So be it a sonnet, be it a, a you know, maybe a guzzle. I, I didn't actually get to write a guzzle, I think. Maybe uh, it's like pan- pantum. I think I included a pantum in there. Um, but the villanelle, um, this this poem, um, I, I do think it, it really did start off with me wanting uh, a sort of repetitive form and, and a repetitive form to express a certain sort of being uh, a stuckness, right? That was like um, a stuckness over the, the lack of inspiration or the lack of um, the inability to write, right? And I think not just talking about that, but also linking the inability to write to something larger, right? So I thought, uh, so th- that was how the kind of poem came about. And I think how we got, how it really kicked off was I read uh, Walcott's, uh, Derek Walcott's poem, uh, Codicil, and I was struck by the lines that I eventually kind of took and used in my own poem, and I was like, oh, okay, this is quite interesting. Um, let's see where we go if we use that. Now. I thought it was really interesting to kind of, like, if I'm remembering the poem correctly, because I, I don't have it in front of me right now, but um, the lines that I use in the repeated refrains I actually belong together in Walcott's poem, right? They're kind of like the, the, the last two lines of Walcott's poem, right? Um, I separated them Right from the beginning, ah. right, I kind of inserted a line in between, and they only can't really go back together um, towards the end. Yeah, and to me, I felt it was a it was a way of kind of like um, not just reckoning with, you know, quote unquote the the history of colonialism, but also the history of post colonialism, like the history of of people like Derek Walcott who have already written all about colonialism and how you know we all have two tongues and blah blah blah. Right, so like okay, so what is my contribution here? Right, what what can I add on right uh, coming so so long after Derek Walcott 
has he already written whatever that I, I can write, right? And if everybody has already written what I have to say, then there's no need for me to say anything, right? And so that's part of me being stuck, right? Or, or, or any writer being stuck. If so many writers have come before them and have said so many different things so well, why should I say anything? Or what do I have to contribute? And I think that's the feeling that I, uh, I felt when writing the poem. And, and I, I guess the, the idea and the concern that was at the top of my mind as I was writing it. Yeah. I hope that helps. I, I, I don't know if... I, I yeah, feel definitely. like you guys must have talked about this like and must have clearly seen this already. So, <laughs> And uh, diving deeper into the, the title, actually, Deeds of Light, where deeds implies like a sort of intention, uh, you also mentioned that you wanted to work with different poetic forms. So was that like uh, the kind of deeds that you were referring to or is there other... Uh, intentions that are concealed behind the title. Oh, okay. Um, I think there are two. So, so the answer is there are two sort of different aspects of it. The first aspect, which is the different forms aspect, really is the 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 answer is, is quite is not that cheap. I think. Uh, it's more like so 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 the the whole idea of deeds of light is is that it's a it's a book about a city, right? The city mm-hmm. Singapore is is not really mentioned by name, but really it haunts the the book in a way, um and. And the sort of light I think that I was thinking about when I thought about deeds of light as a city poem is not the light of the sun, but all the sorts of other kinds of light that come about in the city, right? Reflected light through the glass, neon light at night, street lights, um, you know, lights from the flying overhead, blah, 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 right? Light pollution, stuff like that. And to me, I thought um, this, this sort of, you know, the, the reason why I wanted all these formal um, poems in there is because also the city's made up buildings, right? And, and all these buildings are fixed in a certain way. Um, but if you think about them, they all have differences, right? So they are, they, they are both, you know, they have both a structure and a form, but also they, they have certain differences that make them interesting and aesthetically pleasing, right? So I wanted the poems to be sort of like buildings, to, to be constructed like buildings, and therefore mostly avoiding free verse, but there are some, I think, there's some free verse and blank verse poems in there um, that, that I, I wanted to kind of showcase the, the sort of diversity or the sort of excitement at the use of, of different forms in, in, in the book. Um, as a way to illustrate this idea that the city is, is, is a place of possibilities, not just a place of constriction. Yeah. And with regards to the title, uh, Deeds of Light, the, the full quote is, is, is a Goethe quote. Um, colors are the deeds of light. It's deeds and sufferings. Um, and so the real thing is colors, actually, not, not, not so much deeds. Um, and, and the colors, to me, I, I think, are, you know, are the, the sort of um, possibilities that are occur in the city even without um, you know e- even if you assume that the city is a place that is full of restrictions and stuff like that right so so I think I wrote the blurb uh, for, 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 for Deeds of Light and I think I said something like colours uh, got preserved then white light splits into many different colours that kind of thing and I think that's true in the sense that the, the, the you know natural sunlight um, often comes to us in the form of, of white light right but only in very special circumstances where, where it be, albeit like through uh, you know a naturally occurring rainbow or, or some other sort of like uh, unnatural kind of intervention you get kind of the split into different colours right yeah so, so I thought that that, that was a um, yeah, like, I thought it made sense for the book, um, but I, I would like to add that um, the the name deeds of light came also much later than than uh, the the actual book. Like I'm I'm always in search of titles, so I had all these poems. So like what what should I call this book? Yeah, and after a long agonizing like uh, kind of process, which I cannot remember anymore, <laughs> I settled on deeds of light. Yeah. Mm. 
I was quite intrigued by your visual approach to your poems and deeds of light because you compared them to actual buildings uh, in a city. So we also know that you've written some acoustic works, so like works written in response to visual art. So could you tell us more about this pursuit of yours? When do you start writing uh, actresses? Um, I think almost as soon as I became interested in writing, I was already, with, without knowing the word actresses or whatever, I was already writing in response to things that I saw, and many of the things that I saw were, were, were pieces of art. Um, so I, I kind of remember a very early poem of mine that's in hyperlinkage um, that, that is uh, written in response to an artwork that I saw in, the, in, in MoMA, which is a museum in, in New York City. Um, and I think, I think to to me, the poetry is a way to ex- it's a way for me to understand or for 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 me to grapple with the the art that I see in front of me, right? That I do not often understand at a glance. Sometimes I do, right? Or sometimes I think I do, and then that's why I, why I want to write about it. But all other times, it's about I do not really understand this. I know it moves me. I do not understand it, but it moves me, and therefore I want to puzzle it out and figure it out. And I think that's what I I. I do often in, in my writing that um, that either involves or is about or comes after visual art. Yeah. So what would be the most memorable work of art that you've written a poem in response to? This is a very difficult question. Very difficult question. <laughs> There's so many pieces of art, right? Like you just cannot pick one. Yeah. Um I think I think uh Okay, to me, to me, so so I think when when you say most memorable, most memorable in this moment, and and the thing that comes to mind yeah. straight away is um, is the the so the first poem of of uh, calligraphy actually. Let me see, I've even forgot what the title is. Um, <laughs> the title is "Enclosing Without Blocking Out." It's still it's still transparent, and this poem actually is a is sort of a. It's both an ekphrastic poem and also it is a erasure poem. And uh, let me see. Uh, so, so basically, the artist or the the group of artworks that I'm writing about um, are are these like wonderful wire sculptures uh, that were created by a Japanese American uh, artist called Ruth Asawa, A S A W A. And if you search Ruth Asawa like wire sculpture, uh, you will see examples of these online, and they're really stunning. I have, I have, I have had the privilege of seeing them in, in person before, some of them at least, and they're really amazing because if you see them in person, they're both like, you, you can feel the big, the, the, the overwhelming presence of them, but also the overwhelming lightness of them, so they're like really monumental things, but also have this very light quality to them, you know they, they are both inside and outside at the same time, because if you kind of notice the way they are folded, they're, they're outside kind of like go into and become their insights and they come out again right so it's basically what the poem is about right so I also felt that um, I wanted my poems to be like that right to to convey a sense of weight as as well as lightness at the same time and eventually I felt that it was right for this poem about Ruth Asawa's work to to be the first poem in in, in the book Um, and the poem like I said it's not just ekphrastic it's also a a sort of erasure poem because it is Many of these words are actually things that Ruth Asawa said about her own work um, in, a, in a documentary that, that she gave that, that I happened to find online. And so some of these, uh, most of these words are actually words that she herself um, spoke about her own pieces. And so I kind of reappropriated them as, as my own sort of like um, statement of intent in a way <laughs> for the poems that, that appear in calligraphy. Yeah, so that's what comes to mind. 
actually you're doing such a great work at marketing your new book of poetry because <laughs> I'm really so fascinated by it now. I, I, I didn't intend to market it, but yeah, I, I'm very fascinated by the things that I, I write about, so I think that it lends itself naturally. <laughs> uh, we, we also want to talk about another project of yours, which is Food Republic, of which you're also an editor. Um, so what inspired you to, to start this project? Um, actually, my, my, my friend and fellow poet Daryl Lim was the person who came up with this, with, with the idea, and he found a gap, he found a lack. Um, we are so obsessed by food in Singapore, but we haven't really got a food, sort of literary food writing anthology, and so he said, let's, let's do it, and I was like, yes, let's do it. And then we got Anne, who's our third editor on board, so that, the, the credit really uh, goes to him for the idea. Um, I think we also wanted, uh, sort of um we we had uh, uh, we had some idea of what we did not want and we did not want a lot of like uh, oh you know the food this food reminds me of my roots my grandma you know my culture like we we felt that those themes were very well documented uh, in many kinds of writing um in Singapore and outside of Singapore as well so we wanted to, uh, a slightly different approach i'm not sure if you if you've read the book but uh, we ended up kind of accepting a lot more offbeat and eccentric sort of uh, writing, uh, a lot of writing that kind of uh, is sci-fi in nature as well. Yeah. So we wanted also to kind of disrupt the idea of what you typically think about when you think about food writing. Hmm. And speaking of uh, subjects that don't get a lot of coverage, do you think there's uh, any other subjects that Singaporean poets uh, don't study or explore enough of? Oh, it's hard to say. I, I, I do think actually that increasingly um, Singapore poets, at least those who are writing in English, have become a lot more confident in writing about whatever the heck they want to write about. Um, and it's very difficult to kind of say there's a school or a certain trend or, or whatever. Um, I do think, I do think um, Singapore poetry, I don't know, maybe this is a meta sort of thing, that Singapore poetry could afford to be less concerned about Singapore. Um, not to say that it should just, uh, you know, pretend that it's from another place, but um, it shouldn't be so worried about whether it is Singapore enough, right? I think I think I, I can sense sometimes in in in, in uh, books or poems that, or even books of fiction, especially um, historical fiction, that you know, really people only be interested if they tell if if this work tells me something about Singapore Singaporeans, and I think that we shouldn't feel that way or shouldn't be forced to feel that way. Yeah, anything that you write about if you're Singaporean is automatically Singaporean, right? I guess. So let's move on to questions from our audience now. So do you have any favorite writers, both living and dead? Yes. Um. Okay. <laughs> I will. I just said like like don't forget about Singapore, right? but I think I'll di- divide my responses into Singaporean <laughs> and <that. laughs> because what whatever right like uh mm. and and to me I think the 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 writers the Singaporean poets that I admire the most um I think Wong Mei and Arthur Yap Wong Mei is not really uh Singaporean in the sense that she no longer has uh, Singaporean um citizenship but. Uh, she she continues to be like the the biggest inspiration in terms of both her approach to poetry, um, as well as her approach to living. Which which uh, she, you know um, at the extreme she's she's like really like hermetic. She doesn't she really does not like talking to people. 
Uh, how that manifests is that she doesn't care for publicity. She doesn't promote herself. She doesn't. Um, she she believes that the the words let the words do the talking in a very kind of extreme manner, which I I find is uh is a form of integrity. Um, and that's Wang Mei. Uh, and Arthur Yap also has has influenced my my own writing a lot in the way that he his you know his attention to to um to grammar and his attention to the the the, the kind of uh, observed moment that isn't just uh, observed for the sake of feeling good about it, but observed for a certain surprising quality, uh, which I think is is very important in poetry, right? Surprise. Um, yep. So that's that's the the Singaporeans, I guess. Um, and uh, the, the 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 living and dead thing. Um, the, the the two dead Americans that come to mind for me. Um, the first one is Marianne Moore, um, and she is really uh, Marianne Moore is really I think. Um, Super underrated uh, poet. Uh, she 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 I think passed away in the seventies, but she had started writing since the early like nineteen tens I think, and like o- almost everything from her is just amazing and and far beyond its time. If you read her poetry today, you find that there's nobody writing like her. You you find maybe maybe some people trying to uh you know, um imitate her, but you never find anyone writing like her. And again, she's also like like Arthur Yap. I think she's an observer of the moment, and not just the moment, but also observer of like uh, intricate patterns and details um, that uh, of of objects, right? I love that kind of poetry. Yeah, who else? I mean, these are the people that come to mind. Like like really, uh, you know, once you say these are the the, the names that come to mind, I mean, there there are many more lah. Like you can never stop like talking about other people's poetry, but I think I'll sort of stop there. Yeah. And um, what was your like origin story as a poet? Yes, uh, I tell this to to like workshop groups that I take all the time. This is a story that I I have uh, repeated to death. Um, and I think that part of the story is, uh, when I was young, like when I was like P four or so, my 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 dad's side of the family lived uh, and continues to live in fact in Canada, uh, and so we would visit them once in every few years. And there was this one particular year. Where um, we they they couldn't go with me. I had to actually travel to Canada by myself as like a ten year old or something. And in those days before September 11, um, you could do that. Uh, and I was basically accompanied by a flight attendant from you no know, gate to gate. And then upon reaching Canada, I would be alone, right? Or rather, I'll, I'll, my uncle would be there, but basically my parents wouldn't be there. And there'll be nothing to do except bug my uncle to drive me like 15, 20 minutes away to the nearest library and borrow books and just read nonstop. And it was during winter, so there's really nothing to do. Like you can't really go out walking because Canadian winters are, are brutal. Um, and I think it's a combination of doing, you know, something on hindsight, kind of unusual um, and, and solitary, like traveling to another country by yourself at the age of 10, uh, combined with like just constant reading of like anything you get your hands on that, that kind of made me interested in uh, in the magic of, of writing and, and I think very naturally in extension, the magic of, of, uh, of being a writer or, or, or trying to write myself as well. Yeah, but that that is just one part of the story, I think. The part... In, in which, like, you know, I, I actually start writing, I actually start being interested in publishing. I think these all, all came really gradually and much later. And only after I felt like, oh, you know, like, uh, I should do something about it and, and, and not really, um, not really in the sense of I want to be a writer with a capital W, right? That's not, I've never really felt that way. Yeah. I've only felt like I, I felt the responsibility to the things that I write um, and, and try to, I want to do the best for, for the things that I write, right? So I try to, like, submit to journals and stuff like that. And then eventually I start realizing, oh, you know, the things that I'm writing feel like they belong together. And then I feel like I need 
to be responsible to them again and find a book for them, that kind of thing. Yeah. But I, I never expected myself to be a writer um, in that sense. And I still don't. I still kind of don't. I still feel sometimes that if people introduce me as a writer, I feel like very strange. In a mm. uh, moving on to the next question. What's, the, what's your favourite poem that you've written? I honestly cannot answer this question. <laughs> in good faith, I cannot. Um, because, yeah, I, I, I cannot, I do not... Um, I, there are poems that I like, um, but I cannot mm. say which is my favourite. Um, I, I can tell you one poem I like very much, okay, which is sure. the poem Earthworks in Deeds of Light. Um, it's the one I said, I, I, I rewrote the, the second half of it, right? Um, and, and I think it's still, in, because I, I've recently reread it, uh, because I, I wanted to show it to, to some students I'm teaching, and, and to me it's still kind of, it is pretty, I think, meaningful. Like I'm shocked by myself, like, wow, it's still meaningful after all these years. And um, I think what, what, what I did was, in the first eight lines in the octet of the poem, was kind of describing a, city, a cityscape and describing um, the way in which... Uh, um, <clears throat> we have a lot of these like like uh, buildings in progress, right? Um, that that are being built by migrant labor, and in the the last six lines, right? Uh, which uh, I I sort of kind of pivot um, all the way to to this place uh, in Arizona where an artist has been had bought over an entire crater, um, which is what one does in America, I guess, and he started tunneling this. You know, tunneling into this crater and creating a huge monumental artwork right called um I can't remember what it's called but but the crater is called the Roden crater and he's using the crater kind of his artwork is a sort of a, a, an observatory because he, the, through these holes that he has dug in the crater light will kind of like shine through and kind of like um, create really interesting effects underground um, and to me I felt like just like juxtaposing these two things right because I felt um you know on, on one hand we see um construction work that's kind of dirty beneath us like sort of the thing that we kind of like do because it needs to be done but then quickly try to forget it uh, but on the other hand we look at all these like artists who, who do these things with the, with, the, with the land and the ground and you say wow this is so amazing this is so visionary and stuff like that and I was like why why is there a difference between these two things and, and I thought to put them together to kind of see what came out of it yeah so that's one poem I like about actually since you you mentioned just now that uh, a good confessional is such that it's like a, a poet putting on a mask that makes it seem like it's the poet himself or themselves. So what would you say, or which poems have you written, would you say are the the best representations of the poet under the mask? Ah, uh, good, good question. <laughs> um, so I would say uh, in, in Deeds of Light, there, there are these two poems that are facing each other. I think one is called Mantakap and the other is called Richmond Hill. And those, those are the poems which I, I would quote unquote call conf confessional in a way. Um, and Mantakap really is uh, basically the name of the hometown uh, uh, where my mom grew up. And then uh, Richmond Hill is the name not of my dad's hometown, but of, the, of that suburb in Canada that my dad's family eventually relocated to. Right, so they're basically these two places that I would visit when I was younger. Um, and they're on the left and on the right. And I think they, they, they kind of um, put together, they kind of represent a certain, like, these are two, two halves of me, right? My mom's side, my dad's side that uh, I have experienced growing up. And even in the form of it, I think, um, you know, they, they, they are, the, the poems themselves are like kind of poems of, of four-line stanzas. And, and one of the lines is, is very short, right? One of the lines is half as short as the others. And the, the short line 
in one poem uh, is is the the fourth line of each stanza, and the short poem in uh, the short line in the other one is the first line. So if you flip the poem, if you can take a look at it, like you flip the poem, kind of they can fit together visually. Of course, not not uh, not in terms of language, but if kind of fit together. And I think that was what I was trying to say as well. That these two halves sort of fit together. Yeah. Hmm. Um. Before we conclude, is there anything that you would like to say to our audience or to uh, prospective writers? Hmm. Prospective writers. I. I think. Yeah. I think maybe maybe one piece of advice to prospective writers. Uh. I. I think it's useful to, not to worry too much about whether you are a writer or not, right? Because in in a very banal sort of way, as long as you write, you are a writer, right? As long as you walk, you are a walker. People don't sit around, you know, agonizing over whether they they are a walker. Or not. They just walk. Um, they don't sit around agonizing whether they are a breather or not. They just breathe. And so, um, the advice for for prospective writers is to write, but also, um, you know, not worry about being a writer, but just write. But also, um, there are a lot of activities that are associated with, uh, with with writing, which um, some friends and I call writer ring, uh, which are things like you know, like this, like going on interviews, giving interviews. Uh, uh, publishing in journals, whatever, like uh, making friends at literary events. All these things are not writing, but are activities that surround writing. And sometimes it's very easy to mistake one for the other, right? And say, I, I attend a lot of events, la, I publish a lot of things, la, therefore, I'm a writer, right? Actually, no, right? Still, it's still the same, right? The other way around. Writing makes you a writer and not the other things as well. Yeah. So I think that's, that's good advice for, that has kept me going. And I think that, that hopefully that's, that's good advice for others as well. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I think we've come to the end of our conversation. So, yeah, thank you for joining us. And it was really such an articulate and eloquent conversation. Thanks, thanks for saying so. I'm totally <laughs> like, I, I, I did not, I did not like think about what to say. But yeah, thanks for your questions, which I think helped a lot in, in structuring my thoughts. Yeah, thanks a lot for this. <laughs>